morning. Good to see you guys this morning. Thanks for bringing the church into this space. Um, if you're new, uh, my name is Jamie, one of the pastors of our church. Uh, the guy who most Sundays gets to preach God's word. Excited to to do that this morning. Um, if you are new, uh, just to catch you up to speed, we have, as a church, been in the book of Luke for, good grief, about a year and a half now, I think. A couple of rest stops along the way, and we are officially now five Sundays out from finishing up, uh, working our way through this incredible book of the Bible. And uh, James and I were talking earlier this week just about the uniqueness of this morning's time in the scriptures followed by uh, what, where we'll be next week. It's kind of a more elongated version of a, an Easter weekend in a sense. Um, as we dive into the crucifixion of Jesus this morning, uh, it'll have something of the essence of a Good Friday service about it. Uh, surely a heaviness as we, um, as we behold Jesus dying on behalf of sinners. We're not going to run to the empty tomb this morning quickly. We're going to give some space, come back again next Sunday and, and see the tomb empty. And so um, similarly, uh, I think it'll, it'll have something of the essence of the hopefulness of an Easter Sunday when we come back next week. Uh, we'll have a few baptisms coinciding with that as well. Super excited about that. Um, but I just trust that the Lord will work in our, in our lives in the space in between this week as we sit not with three days of, of space between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, but seven full days between the heaviness of the cross and the hope of the empty tomb. And so if you have a Bible, uh, I'll go ahead and invite you to open it up this morning to Luke chapter 23. We'll be in verses 26 through 49 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. Feel free to grab that Bible and utilize it uh, during your time with us this morning. Uh, the passage will also be up on the screen behind me as we work our way through it. Uh, let, me, let me go ahead and pray for us, and uh, we'll, we'll jump into uh, the great hope of the gospel as we see it. Uh, laid out in the pages of Scripture together. Heavenly Father, praise you for the covenant of redemption before the foundations of the world that it was agreed upon between the third, three persons of the Godhead that, Father, you would send Jesus into the world having decreed this plan of redemption, that Jesus, you would accomplish it. And Holy Spirit, that you would apply that work of redemption to our hearts without which we would have no hope. Lord, I pray that this story uh, that could be so familiar that it doesn't strike us as it should uh, would awaken our hearts from their slumber this morning. That the news that many of us already know would not grow cold to us. Lord, I pray that you would meet us in a fresh way this morning as we sit with your word in front of us, this great story of redemption that reaches its apex as we sit with these very God-breathed words this morning. Holy Spirit, would you move mightily in power uh, as we spend time uh, with your inspired word in front of us. In the name of Jesus Christ, the only Savior and King, I pray. Amen. So this morning's passage brings us face-to-face -face with the great jewel of the Christian faith, as some have called it, the cross of Jesus Christ. Uh, we, we worked our way through a sermon series a few years back now entitled Cruciform, where we, we spun that jewel and we looked at its many facets, the many outworkings of uh, the hope of the cross and, and what it purchases for us. Luke's gospel account 
an emphatic declaration that Jesus came to die, the Son of Man having come to seek and save the lost, Christ the innocent, condemned to die that we the guilty might go free. At this point in the story, declared innocent, going back to last week, by both Herod and Pontius Pilate, neither of whom found any fault in Jesus, nonetheless delivered over to the will of the people for whom nothing less than the crucifixion of Jesus would do. That's where we pick up the story this morning in verse 26, where Luke tells us, And as they led him, that is Jesus, away, They seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. Crucifixion invented by the Persians around 500 BC, perfected by the Romans who had figured out how to extract the most suffering that you possibly could out of a person dying this kind of death. And when we talk about the cross of Jesus Christ, we're not simply talking about a doctrine, but a fact. Another way we could say it, the cross is not only theological, but historical. It's something that truly happened in history. The multifaceted jewel of the cross, it's mounted in the the setting of first century Palestine as Jesus of Nazareth died on a splintered wooden cross outside the city of Jerusalem. In Jesus' case, Going back to the last few weeks of our time in Luke's gospel account, we know that his suffering began long before his actual crucifixion. Not only the agony he experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane, the thought of bearing the fullness of the righteous wrath of God, but to the the flogging that he had recently received, which with this being a a family-style Fifth Sunday service would perhaps be too gruesome for me to to describe. Not to mention the, the crown of thorns that was pressed into his head, sending Jesus, according to many scholars, into hypovolemic shock, a condition in which a person suffers uh, such a large amount of blood loss that the heart races to try to pump blood that isn't there, and the blood pressure drops, causing one to faint or collapse. Helps to explain what what Luke's describing in these verses. As Jesus, we, we know he began carrying his own cross. John 19 verse 17 tells us as much. And yet he's unable to carry it all the way to the place of his impending death in the wake of the scourging that he had just received. And so a man named Simon had no idea what he was waking up to that day. Is seized and made to carry Jesus' cross the rest of the way. Simon of Cyrene, Cyrene, a city in North Africa, fairly large population of Jewish people at the time. Simon himself, likely a Jewish man who had traveled to Jerusalem for the annual celebration of Passover. You can already start to to see the outworkings of the gospel going forth to the Gentiles. You may recall back in Uh, Chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus had said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Or how about chapter 14, verse 27? Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Simon here unknowingly presents us with an incredible depiction of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ as he follows in the footsteps of Jesus bearing a cross. A vastly different picture than the easy believism that the church has embraced in recent history. 
A great multitude here, including many women mourning and lamenting for Jesus as he struggles his way down that final stretch of the Via Dolorosa. Verse 28, but turning to them, to those who were mourning, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves, for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? This, this lament of Jesus, it's, it's only found here among the four gospel accounts. A theme that we've encountered several times throughout Luke's writing. Going back to, as an example, chapter 19. When Jesus drew near the city of Jerusalem, he wept over it, Luke tells us, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation, the visitation of Almighty God in Jesus Christ. Or how about chapter 21, verses 20 through 24, where Jesus says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter the city, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled." Going all the way back to Jesus' words in chapter 13. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those that are sent to it. How often, Jesus said, would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. As we talked about a few times in this series Jerusalem would know the judgment of God in the the soon-to-come destruction of the city and her temple. An act of judgment on the Jewish people in the wake of their rejection of Jesus and his kingdom. A foreshadowing of the great judgment to come when Christ returns. Jesus here prophesying a judgment so terrible that barrenness, normally considered a curse, that's a theme throughout scripture, would be a blessing, Jesus says, in that day. Scholars are are divided, verse 31, on what Jesus means by by green wood, a wood that doesn't burn easily. Some believing that he's referring to the current stability of the city of Jerusalem, no seeming danger of destruction in this moment. Others believing that Jesus is referring to himself, the green wood of, of innocence unnaturally under the flames of God's wrath in this moment. Either way, the the contrast is clear. The dry wood representing the Jewish people and the coming destruction of the city soon to be brought under the fire and flame of God's judgment. The story continues. Verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came 
to the place that is called the skull. There they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. The skull. From the Aramaic term Golgotha. The Latin term for Calvary. The place outside the city walls where uh, the author of Hebrews tells us Jesus was crucified. Luke here, not, not offering much in the way of detail, uh, as his focus is not so much on the physical suffering of Jesus. If we were in one of the other three gospel accounts, we'd go deeper down that road, further down that road. I mean, we, we know that Jesus truly suffered. In, in fact, and James alluded to this earlier, that there was no existing word to describe the pain of crucifixion in Jesus' day. And so a word was created. A new word was made up. In our language, it's the word excruciating. That word literally means out of the cross. Ex, out of, cruci, crucify. In Jesus' case, crucified between two common thieves that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Isaiah 53, 12. And he was numbered with the transgressors. Verse 34. And Jesus said, wonder of wonders. Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Jesus had called his disciples to love their enemies, chapter 6. To do good to, to bless, to pray for those who would hate, uh, curse, abuse them. Completely unnatural, supremely radical. Unconditional love extended without merit regardless of circumstance. Here beautifully put on full display in the cry of Jesus from the cross from which he hung. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Another messianic fulfillment of Isaiah's description of the suffering servant. Again, Isaiah 53, 12. And he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. In the words of one scholar, in this dramatic statement from the cross, Jesus prayed not for himself, not for his disciples, not for his friends, but for his tormentors, his executioners, those who were committing this most despicable act, the greatest sin in all of human history. Jesus' words here, not not absolving those responsible for his crucifixion of their culpability, rather declaring that they don't truly understand what they're doing in this moment. The Apostle Paul would go on to say it this way, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And yet, as we saw last week, when we saw Jesus on trial, the great irony of it all That Jesus' very death here providing the basis upon which those crucifying the Lord of glory might be forgiven. It's wondrous compassion and grace. The love of God for the vilest of sinners in Jesus Christ. He goes on to tell us, Luke does, the second part of verse 34. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Again, another of the many fulfillments of ancient 
prophecy here in this passage, the dividing of Jesus' garments and the casting of lots. Going back to Psalm chapter 22. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. This is hundreds of years before crucifixion came along. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. The taunting of the, of the Jewish leaders, too, hearkening back to that very same psalm just a few verses earlier. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Those mocking Jesus in this morning's passage declaring he saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. Why don't you pull a rabbit out of your hat, Jesus? See what you can do now. He had, in fact, saved others. It's the, it's the great theme of Luke's gospel account. The Messiah, having come to give sight to the blind, to make lepers clean, rescuing the disciples from a storm at sea, healing people of the tormenting power of demons. Here, again, ironically proving to be the Messiah and choosing not to save himself. In remaining on the cross. The Christ of God. Earlier in Luke, the language describing a savior for the people, good news for the world, the Father's chosen one, appointed before the foundation of the world to accomplish the Father's plan of redemption. God's plan A, the only hope of rescue for a world of lost sinners. Luke tells us that the soldiers also mocked him alongside the Jewish leaders, coming up, offering him sour wine, Saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. It's the second of three taunts. In this case, on the part of the, the Roman soldiers. Offering Jesus the cheap wine that they would typically drink. Meant here, according to many scholars, to prolong Jesus' suffering in helping with his thirst. All the while, a, a placard above his head announcing the crime for which he was dying. Meant to deter others from rising up against the Roman Empire. And yet, the very words on that placard, the confession of the church. Verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him. Saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. The other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. A tale of two destinies. One of the two thieves mocking, joining in the song of the Jewish leaders and the Roman soldiers. The other penitent. His final words, a plea for mercy, profession of faith. Notice what he declares here. The holiness of God, for one, a God to be feared. 
his own sinfulness, deserving of the just punishment under which he finds himself, the perfect innocence of Jesus, unworthy of the punishment which he's receiving in this moment, and a plea with Jesus to remember him in his kingdom. Not a declaration of his own moral goodness, simply a plea with his final breath for mercy. It's an undeniable example of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. Here you have a man who can do absolutely nothing to improve his moral resume before God. Time's up. All the sand in the hourglass, it's fallen. The mercy and grace of God, his only hope. On his deathbed, uh, the famous mathematician and astronomer, Nicholas Copernicus, prayed, I do not ask for the grace, Lord, that you gave St. Paul, nor can I dare to ask for the grace that you granted to St. Peter. But the mercy which you did show to the dying robber, that mercy show to me. True poverty of spirit. Luke's brought that before us over and over and over again. Jesus responding with the most glorious words that a poor and spirit criminal could possibly dream. Truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Death immediately followed by bliss, the soul of a believing sinner brought into the very presence of God. As Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5, 8, away from the body, at home with the Lord. Paradise, another name for heaven, the dwelling place of God with his people. The biblical terminology here associated with the imagery of Eden, the garden of God. These words alluding to the hope of restoration, the presence of God among his people in the new Eden. The beauty and wonder of creation regained as depicted in the final chapters of Scripture. And yet, there's a darkness about this moment in the story, coupled with the beauty of it all. Verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, Luke tells us, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The imagery here. This could be two sermons, two sermons on these two statements, verses 44 and 45. Would have been roughly between noon and and 3 p.m. at a time of the day when the sun would have normally shined the brightest. A blanket of darkness shutting out the noonday sun. Some believing that a, a solar eclipse to have taken place, failing to acknowledge that a solar eclipse only creates true darkness for just a few brief minutes. Others arguing for some sort of drought-inflicting sandstorm. Strong enough to create enough dust to, to blot out the sun. Failing to account for the fact that Passover takes place during the wet season. No, Luke, Luke's describing here a supernatural darkness. A darkness meant to communicate something of great significance to you and me as, as the readers. Darkness in the midst of the noonday sun declared elsewhere in Scripture to be a sign of God's judgment. The prophet Isaiah declaring, Isaiah chapter 13, verses 9 and 10, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. 
For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. Or maybe even more explicitly in line with what Luke tells us here. Amos chapter 8 verses 9 and 10. On that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. Lord Jesus hung on a cross bearing the, the judgment of God under the darkened skies of Jerusalem. From eternity past, the Father's beloved In this moment, the Father's forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The darkness sweeping over Jerusalem that day, a sign of God's judgment falling upon Jesus in our place. We sing it at times. In our place, condemned he stood, sealing our pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. When we fix our eyes, and you know this, On the crucified Jesus, we see the hope of salvation. The hope that's ours in Jesus taking our darkness upon himself. But more than that, not only did Jesus drink the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs, bearing the the utter darkness of the judgment that was ours to bear, but two, he made a way for us to enter into the very presence of God, the curtain of the temple torn in two, verse 45. We've talked about it several times along the way. When when Adam and Eve were exiled from God's garden sanctuary of Eden, a cherubim was placed with a sword in hand to keep them out of the garden. A gate established, you might say, separating man from God. It's not the only place in Scripture where we see cherubim separating man from God. Cherubim were embroidered on the, the curtain of the tabernacle, the veil separating the holy place from the most holy place. The holy place being where the priests would perform their daily duties as we studied in Hebrews a few years back. The most holy place or the holy of holies entered only once a year and only by the high priest who would go in on the day of atonement, offer incense, sprinkle the blood of sacrificial animals both for his own sins and the sins of the people. The cherubim embroidered on the curtain of the tabernacle a visible reminder that the Israelites couldn't enter because of their sin. A reminder of what happened in Eden. Man separated from God. Cherubim standing in the way. When Jesus' body was torn that day, so was the veil, Luke tells us, separating us from God's presence. The cherubim taken away. The inapproachable innermost room of the temple visible for all to see. The glorious and wondrous hope of the gospel made visible. Jesus, the way back into the presence of God. He lived a sinless, perfect life that you and I could never live, fulfilling the law perfectly on our behalf. And he would go on to die the sinner's death that we deserve to die, bearing our sins in his body on the tree that we might know the joy, like the thief on the cross, of being with Jesus in paradise. No longer separated. Verse 46. And Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, 
Into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, Luke tells us he breathed his last. Final words of the suffering servant. Though forsaken, expressing confidence in the Father's love. Confidence that death would not have the final word. Entrusting his soul to the Father. This story closing out in verse 47. These words, and when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Different people responded in in different ways to the death of Jesus that day, just as different people respond in different ways to the death of Jesus today. Some, Some wept for Jesus with the heaviest of hearts, like the women who stood among the crowd given special mention in in this morning's passage in preparation for the significant role that they would soon play in Jesus' burial and resurrection. Others scoffed at Jesus and mocked him in his suffering, like the Jewish leaders and Roman soldiers. Still others put their trust in Jesus, like the penitent thief who died at his side. And one man, we're told, if no one else did, gave praise to God. A Roman centurion. A man who had presided over so many executions along the way that he probably lost count. And yet, there was something different about this death on this day. Imagine what he had just seen. Having just seen Jesus forgive his enemies in the moment of his greatest suffering. Having heard the words of Jesus spoke to the believing criminal by his side. Having seen the skies darkened for several hours, perhaps having received word that the the temple curtain had torn from top to bottom in this moment. Having seen Jesus die with perfect grace and self-control. Here, not only expressing Jesus' innocence in agreement with Herod, Pontius Pilate, and the thief on the cross... But according to Matthew and Mark's accounts, declaring, truly this was the Son of God. The confessional words, think about this, of not only a Gentile, but a man who actively participated in the greatest sin the world has ever known. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ. One of the lawless men, Luke would go on to describe in Acts chapter 2, who crucified and killed Jesus. I mean, my goodness. If there's hope for the centurion who presided over the darkest act in all of human history, then there's hope for you and me. So many passages of Scripture that we could run to this morning. I'll give you three. Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 2, 24. 
He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. That the response this morning is simple. The invitation is to stand at the foot of the cross with the centurion and behold the crucified Jesus. To see him taking your darkness upon himself, the only darkness that could have destroyed you forever. To see the darkest moment in all of human history and like the centurion, give praise to God. To allow the beauty of Jesus in his death to flood your darkness with light as you soak in the mercy and grace that's yours at the foot of the cross.